0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than what divides us. Coming up, an interview with Rebecca Watson, author of Little Scratch.
1: This book is not chaptered it's it's ongoing you're kind of contained within this person's head obviously it's it's a day in the life so it's from when she wakes up to when she falls asleep and it's it's no stopping it's you know it's live time
0: we will be back with rebecca watson in just a bit first i want to say to you thank you for listening for the last seven plus years i've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of first draft although in the past year it's been almost 50 Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back. Whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Writers. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear going. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversation about what it means to be alive today and dig deeper into the art and craft of writing. This effort takes money, time, equipment, more organization than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. As a thank you for joining the First Draft community, I offer my patrons a lot of extras, the best being ad-free and pitch-free episodes. No please, no ads. In addition, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode— writing tips from featured authors, books, a monthly newsletter, and more. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this pitch seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount, and you know it will go to the continuation of these conversations focused on literary craft, content, and practice, as well as on the culture we inhabit. I know that it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. And you can donate at patreon.com firstdraftwriters. Thank you so much. My guest today is Rebecca Watson, author of the novel Little Scratch, and assistant arts editor at the Financial Times. She also writes for publications including The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, and Granta. Little Scratch, her first novel, is told in a stream of consciousness about one day in the life of a 20-something female protagonist. As we follow the unnamed narrator, we watch her go from being hungover and rushing to work at a media company to her becoming more anxious and more revealing of the trauma she has recently faced having been raped by her boss. The pages of the novel are visualizations of how the narrator's mind works, sometimes with large blank spaces, inane repetitions of words, multiple columns representing all her thoughts that she experiences simultaneously, and dense paragraphs of questions she has about how to escape her pain and the meaning of her life. Watson began writing as a girl and focused on poetry before branching out to fiction and journalism. We began the discussion with Rebecca Watson sharing how she would characterize Little Scratch and describe it to a new reader.
1: So I guess kind of broadly, I, w- I would say, you know, I am, I am writing fiction, I'm writing a, a novel, I, I see it as a novel, and I guess it's kind of, it's prose that looks different, you know. It's, if, you, if you were to hear me read it out loud, Um, I think at points you'd think I was reading what, what would look like traditional prose and other points i perhaps it would sound like half prose. I guess what it was trying to be was kind of imitating what it sounds like if no one is listening, you know, if, if you're hearing someone else's head, you know, a performative person, sure. It's, it's not, it's not a quiet voice. It's a very performative and as a voice that's aware of, uh, itself listening in, um, but it's kind of you—you you skip some of those kind of connectors and transitions that you might you might have if if you were writing for someone else. And so I think when I first like started out writing Little Scratch, the idea was to see how close I could imitate kind of immediate present tense voices, um, and that's what it—that's what the whole you know the task Little Scratch became was you know how to how to keep on going within someone's head. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess it's prose that confuses people. Um, and when I, answer, when I answer and say it's prose, people kind of raise their eyebrows and say, yeah, but are you sure? Um, but I think if they listened, then, then maybe they might start to agree.
0: I want to talk about the substance of the book. Overall, it's Mm -hmm. basically about this woman and you don't know her name. She's in her 20s. She works at a media organization. She has a boyfriend that she really loves. And you wake up with her in the morning on her way to work. And as you go through her day, you see how distraught she is and how her mind kind of wanders from like a very deep pain and wound from the fact that she was raped by her boss to childhood memories, to life in her house, to going to work, to looking forward to her boyfriend, to some things with her coworkers. And so you're going back and forth with, with all of these feelings with her. And mm-hmm. I think the, the at the root of of this are a lot of questions about what really happened. Can she admit it is their name like it's kind of hard on some level to call it what it is and then she can call it what it is and but I think in the end she she hasn't told anybody in her life and so I kind of walked away with one thing for me was lies versus the truth which mm-hmm. which hurts more does it hurt more to keep something like this in or does it hurt more to tell people in your life and maybe have them see you in a different way or ha- have that pain be reverberating through other people who you love?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. I feel like that was something that, yeah, that definitely was kind of the, the crux for her. That's what she was, was going between, right? And I think like practically speaking, like perhaps as a, as a reader or as, or as the writer with that distance from, you know, not being stuck within her own head all the time, the answer is to speak, right? That, that feels like the solution because in speaking, you have some sort of resolution or you, at least you have a statement, you know, you're able to commit to something. Um, and the thing I I wanted her to go between is that at the end of the day, you have like this, this the violence of, of, of making that statement, the, the statement becomes a kind of act, right? To, to, to confirm and affirm that this thing happened to her um, is, is a point of climax, is a, is a point of ascent that she's not ready to make. Um, and even if after this one statement has, made, has been made and that people have been told things may eventually get better, the choice to instead stay quiet and to allow things to continue on as they are, although that's... Uh, a different kind of violence, and arguably something that is is far worse. It allows her to, to just continue, you know. Um, and I remember, like when I when I was um, sending this out, someone someone read it. Um, a man in I think his fifties or sixties. Um, it was it, it was someone, yeah, friend of a friend who'd sort of passed on to this person, and. They didn't understand why there was a question. You know, it was like, well, surely she just she should just say something. Um, I think for some people, it's very hard to to see that as a as a choice. You know, it's just like, well, something happened. You say it. Um, and I guess when I was writing this protagonist, I kind of wanted to explore the way that in you know power structures suddenly. It it becomes a choice, not an inevitability, and it actually becomes something very, very difficult to say, and and something very, very violent to, to just admit a bit violence. Again, with with at the end of the book, I didn't want it to be sure what she would do. I didn't want the reader to to leave thinking tomorrow she will say something, and I didn't want them to leave thinking tomorrow she won't say something. I wanted that ambiguity to to remain.
0: I think I got from some of her musings, and I can imagine. Myself, like just having empathy and compassion for this character and all all women like her, that maybe once you say it, it becomes more real.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's not that it it isn't already real for her. I mean, you see, you see in the book the way that it manifests and ensnares everything in her life. You know, even the kind of the the dullest of uh, admin work becomes something that is in some way tethered to her drama. But she experiences this without able to, being able to make the connection herself. She's not necessarily aware that the way things are playing out are because of this thing that she's not talking about. Um, and in sometimes, kind of bad things happening to you, rather than admitting that bad things have happened to you, is is a kind of easier is easier way of going about it. Um, yeah, I, I find I find that kind of whole realm of. Uh, you know, verbal statements as as acts of violence or of acts of kind of, of of assertion that can be too much for a person to to ever commit. Something really interesting. You know, I think we underestimate language and the kind of just just committing uh, a sentence to words and and how much that can impact someone.
0: You mean, do you mean if she says that? Well, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by that.
1: Uh, as in just purely you know putting six words together mm-hmm. and, and and in doing that saying you know I have been raped and it's it should be something that's so incidental you know you're you're just putting word words together. Um, but for her that could be as strong as as reliving the whole experience again.
0: Yeah, I understand. I think too something I got, out of her perspective is that 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 might define her that she there's a part where she's saying like I am more than this body like I am a -hmm. a person who wants to write and that if you break it to this crudest level that this was something that happened to her body like she was yeah she was musing on that too like it just kind of like he entered her he left her and was it even sex? What what was it? And did that make her a cheat with her boyfriend? And that maybe that that fear of defining you, yourself that way when there's so much more to you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's probably in the sense of participating in a world where you don't just have control over that. do Once once you told someone that you've been raped, you then become defined by someone else as that as well. Um, and yeah, I kind of wanted to explore that the kind of trope that um is applied to people who have sort of suffered from uh you know who who've been raped or um, been harassed they've then they've come branded by that you know it, it, people can kind of then uh talk about them as as permanent victims as kind of this one one tone uh thing and um it becomes an identity that you have to exist within them whether you want to or not
0: she is a writer herself. She hasn't really been writing lately, but she loves poetry and she's consumed at least, you know, really interested in the literary world of, of her town. Like she went to a poetry reading with her boyfriend and she's talking about an author and she's talking about, I think how she writes autofiction. Yeah. 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 And I'm wondering if you can talk about autofiction, like what does that mean to you? Does that have any resonance with this book for you?
1: Sure. Um, I, this is, this passage, um, I always kind of like smirk when someone brings it up because it's it, it's not. I kind of wrote it in knowing that the reader would would read that and it would be a moment where they they rear their head and uh, perhaps feel like the author's kind of come off the page to talk to them about. The assumptions that, that they may or may not be making about me as a writer, and um, y- you know, when you when you hear the kind of the facts of this book and the facts of my life, I can there are there's so many connections to make. It. I kind of find it quite funny because a lot of them I don't even think about. Um, you know, I work in a newspaper office. This uh, protagonist works in a newspaper office. Uh, she has been raped. I I was once raped. But um, her her life you know is is not mine and um i kind of i don't know i feel like i, I borrowed a, a texture of a world um and i wanted to borrow a texture of a world um i actually i actually write myself into this book um there's a there's a colleague that um she speaks to and he constantly is checking in on her um he makes her tea he compliments her shoes who's kind of there as this kind of Weird figure that uh, can be kind to her, and the the protagonist kind of revere.s You know, I I, I felt like you know if I was to put a writer, uh, me, in in the book, I wanted that the character would obviously would would like them because uh, as a as a character, the sure the writer becomes kind of like your god, right? Like you're they they thank you for making them exist. Um, and so this this colleague kind of passes in and out of, of the book. Very briefly, and uh, is is a very incidental person. But I wanted to just kind of introduce them as a way of of pointing away from the protagonist. So, people were to ask, "Well, where you know is this you?" I'd say, "No, there's this person here is me instead." So, the book isn't the book isn't autofiction. But I was very interested in in the overlap because I think that the way we talk about things either being a novel or things being blurred memoir or autofiction is is kind of so so binary and and so disingenuous as to how I at least feel writing works you know I feel like fiction is a kind of tightrope and you're you're walking along it and you're gonna accidentally you know tip tip off or, or almost sort of sway sway from your sort of stability of fiction and there are kind of moments of, I guess, emotional truth or, you know, environmental signposts that are, are recognizably mine. Um, and I I would be very impressed to meet any any writer who doesn't, you know, have that same thing of just of just the textures of your world being absorbed into what you're writing. And and these these, you know, that's that's how you know how to write life and how to write people is by understanding either your own feelings or other people's feelings, and understanding your own experience or other people's experiences. Um, And so those those things are there. Um, And yet this person, this protagonist, feels so distinct from me and so alive in my head as someone else's voice. You know, when I was writing, I was listening to her rather than listening to myself. Um, And I felt led by her. But now I I kind of look at the two things and I say, well, sure. Yeah. Why would you not think that this is me? Because there's so much to connect to me.
0: I think one of my favorite parts in the book that gets to what you're talking about, you're talking about, you know, that the feelings that she can feel are probably feelings that you felt. Maybe they were in this context, maybe they were something else, but that's kind of what I think we read for is to understand ourselves and our humanity better. Mm -hmm. And people might, who read this and may have been raped and feel these things or not feel these things, or they might feel them in another context. On page 138, you are talking, this is a section kind of also in the middle of the book where it's kind of more, I think the book from my read, there's parts where you can see her scattered thoughts are are more scattered and she's distracted by things in her surroundings. So she might start a thought and then on the other side of the page is something else going on or another conversation. But in this, in this section, she's much more super present, really going into her head, no distractions. And she's really talking about when you have so, uh, like a feeling inside that's so powerful, you don't know what to do with it. He, she's talking about that feeling of nothingness, um, the feeling of of routines. You know, what if that feeling of purposeless just keeps rising, heightening, rising, getting louder, what then? Is that the exact moment when you've lost it? And then later on the page, one of my favorite lines is it says, um, infinite sky overhead and feeling trapped, shut in and knowing you cannot leave it move away step aside for a moment and I just wanted to ask you about that that feeling when you can't deal with the impossibility of holding those feelings in it's like you almost feel them in your body like how do you live with it when it's all in the container of your body but you can't you just can't like get out in some way
1: mm, yeah this is something that I was it, that's a really important part for me in the book it's something that I was really really interested in to write um for her and, and also f- I felt like it was important for the reader as well because I kind of I wanted to connect that to the reader's experience of, of reading this you know this is this, this book is not chaptered it's it's ongoing you're kind of contained within this person's head obviously it's um it's a day in the life so it's from when she wakes up to when she falls asleep and it's it's no stopping it's you know it's live time um and I wanted that kind of claustrophobia this kind of level of of immersion that is uh both intense and uh unstoppable I wanted that to to be an overlap and I felt like that point in the book the reader had been within her head for long enough that they may begin to almost recognize that level of being trapped um and of course the reader can stop reading but I wanted um that to be a kind of a signpost that. The reader can choose to stop reading, but this protagonist is is stuck in that head and is unable to stop. is unable to get off. Um, and yeah, I, I I think with these kind of like in intense levels of feeling. So when you're kind of consumed with trauma, when you're when you're trapped into something having happened to you, and once something's happened, you can't go back and you know retry and or do something else to avoid it having happened. Um, you have to just keep going on and on and on, um, and you know that's that's so much what this this day in her life is. And also, you know, this is just one day in her life, but you know there there are many other days that will will play exactly like this. Um, but yeah, I I do I do just I do just find that kind of fascinating, both in terms of how how feeling works of of it being able to contain you and, and also, and yet you just, you just manage, you know, and, and the kind of the human capacity to just contain and, and keep on and keep on is something that just feels kind of extraordinary and impossible at the same time.
0: It does feel impossible. And for her, it's like she has tricks or she has outlets. You know, she says at one point, I cannot get through the day if everything brings up something else. And then she also said, when, when did I start making bargains with myself adjusting as I go? And so you you see just through those simple lines how hard it is to just go from one minute to the other and what she has to mitigate or strategies she has to employ to just get mm-hmm. to the next moment.
1: Yeah, th- this is why like the, the day in the life is, you know, on a, on a Friday, it's... Um in a nine to five job that for the reader to to experience this kind of like immersion into someone's head on a day where there aren't enough distractions. So she's suddenly these kind of what feel like quite mundane structures of like stapling and sending emails and making phone calls suddenly become kind of like lifelines. That's something that she both resents and needs because even the smallest structures, the smallest regularities are things that she can cling on to Um, and in some ways, they act as her like daily digressions, a way of, for a moment, pausing from what she's trying not to think about.
0: So one of her coping mechanisms is to scratch herself, and it's called Little Scratch. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about that.
1: Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, she has this kind of compulsion to, to scratch. Um, there's always a kind of underlying itch going on. Um, yeah, it kind of means lots of different things to me. I mean, I, I guess on one level it's this sense of there being something that her body knows before her. So she's she hasn't confronted fully the fact that she's been raped. She, you know, she edges towards it and then pushes back. Um, and it's almost like her, you know, I, I see it as her body wearing her trauma. Her body has already been through that and has the symptoms of it. Um, and so when... Well, after she was raped, in not talking about it and not allowing herself to think of it, though I saw it as a kind of splintering, uh, uh, the way her body and her mind suddenly kind of drew apart from each other. In in kind of pushing back, she was kind of splintering those things. She was um, halving herself. Um, and so I, I see the scratching as her, in some ways, trying to... to unify again to, to bring those two things together. But instead, what she does is she tears her skin away. And so she loses parts of herself in trying to kind of reclaim herself. Um, and so so part, part of it was that. Um, it's also obviously, you know, with it being called Little Scratch, it's, um, it's you know, a, a classic, maybe particularly English, um, statement of, uh, understatement, you know it's it's something that's not actually a big deal. Um, and uh, obviously the the title is lowercase as well, which uh, one of the reasons is because it's kind of making it seem smaller than it is. Um, and so yeah, it's 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 basically this this sense of of if anything that's that's statement that she is able to make is is understatement. That's the way that she, Negotiates her experiences by understating, um, and at the same time, you know, e- even her own acts of scratching aren't aren't little; they aren't uh, slight. She's she's you know she's act- committing acts of self harm, which to, to herself she sees as kind of small bargains, um, but is actually just kind of yeah, destructing things further.
0: You say all days have their inheritance, their prior decisions, so. I mean, we know that. I don't know if we always, you know, without trauma, if we think that much about how each moment in our life is built on the previous moment and there's this thought around it, I think that's inescapable that when you're not thinking about trauma, it doesn't seem like it matters. But when you are thinking about trauma, it seems like it's the only thing that matters.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah. The inheritance thing is, um, I find really interesting, particularly because I was obviously writing one day. Um and the kind of like when, when I was going about writing that, the, the question in my mind of was sort of how much how much do I include from her whole life, how much do I include from her experience and her history? Um and I, the way I kind of went about that initially was in my own head thinking, you know, in a in a day, I sort of would would, would go through. A day, and as as I went through, occasionally I would kind of check in and be like, "What have I thought about so far today? How much of my life or the world have I considered?" And I was really trying to work out the a fair ratio of of you know how a day actually goes and how much we really think on. Um, and so I was I don't know I mean when I first started writing this book, it it wasn't to it wasn't to tell a story about someone who was being raped, it was about telling... It was about facing the challenge of how to write immediacy, how to write first person, present tense. Um, And a story was always going to come about and always be told in writing immediacy. Um, It was important for me that the balance was immediacy and what fell into the gaps of the day was only as much as you would rationally and fairly learn of a person. Um, and so that inheritance line kind of implies, you know, how much do we, how much do we know of this person from reading this book? And, um, I think, I think a lot is, is, is left for the reader to, to only kind of guess out.
0: You get one glimpse of her past and that is a scene from her youth where she's at a pool and she's looking yeah. at a young girl who's naked and staring at her and she's really just staring at her like her skin cuz i think i think that is the time when she was in adolescence or puberty and mm-hmm. um, she was looking at this young girl and and all, already kind of mourning the loss of having like kind of maybe pure skin and 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 that youth and her mother saw her looking at this young child and thought maybe maybe something more sinister or maybe that she was a lesbian or maybe something like she was looking at her daughter in a way she hadn't seen her before. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little more about this.
1: I guess like that moment was a kind of, yeah, exactly. A kind of moment of of ambiguity. And she, I kind of was thinking, you know, like we, I think everyone has memories that kind of return and you're not quite sure why they return. And I think they, they, that often those kind of like memories as a kind of young person, they, they come back because you mentally still haven't fully reckoned with, you know, maybe you didn't understand in the moment what you were thinking, or uh, maybe you haven't kind of reflected on the way in which your mind will be satisfied and kind of tick it off as a as a memory that feels resolved. Um, and so I wanted there to be a moment of, of ambiguity, a moment of uh, almost... I don't know. I mean, I think it was important that there was there was no one in this book that was, you know, good um or uh two dimensional. I wanted there to be a kind of level of, of ambiguity of perspective. Um I think that our desires or perspectives are never clear and always something to be reckoned with. Um and, and that memory is something, you know very naive and simple I think it is that of just just mourning the loss of of being young and and not being seen you know and I think as particularly as a a young woman I think many many women uh, as soon as they go through puberty suddenly kind of lose a kind of connection to their body because other people suddenly witness it too are, are watching are aware of the way your body's changing um and so that that moment was was just actually quite an innocent thing of just thinking god you know that's what it is to to be no one and and in being no one be be more of someone you know be more united um but it I saw it as a memory that perhaps you know had had recurred many times before in her head because she herself was unclear exactly what it meant and you know maybe she partly understood that that's what that memory meant but also, was not fully clear, um, and in this, in Little Scratch, I think a, a lot of what I try and explore is is the way that even within assertion is amb- ambiguity and confusion. You know, whenever we're, we're never fully clear of what has happened or how we feel or what we think, um, and yeah, I think that moment was just one of thousands and thousands of moments that that happened in her life.
0: One of the things that she has to do that I think is more common for women than maybe we realize or maybe we didn't used to talk about is how you have to sort of live face to face with the person who assaulted you. That it could be a family member and in this case it's her boss and she needs a job and so she keeps going to work and he's there and he's like this looming presence. You don't, you really hear about him, you don't really see him at one point he sent out an, an like a all staff email about harassment um but she she has to constantly be there it's like perpetuating the pain
1: yeah um he he he, he right there's there's like one tiny moment where he becomes present in the book and it's when he like just comes up and asks whether she sent an email or not um, and it's like the most understated and like almost irrelevant moment in, in terms of like reckoning with, with what's happened to her. Like he just comes to the desk and is like, have you sent this email? And she's like, yes, I've already told you I've sent this email. And he's like, are you sure you sent this email? And she's like, yes, I've sent this email. And he just disappears again. Um, and I kind of thought it was, um, yeah, I wanted him to just kind of flit in and then and flit out and it, it to be a kind of very unsatisfying uh, moment of, appearance um yeah I, I think that that's you know i mean the percentage of people that have been assaulted or or harassed or raped i mean you know it's predominantly by someone that you know um, and i wanted his, his presence to be kind of looming um, and it was it was it was a way of kind of both implying how uh, rape and how trauma are always kind of in the background. Like he, he becomes in some ways uh, an embodiment of that, rather than rather than the rapist. He's an embodiment of, what, of the way that uh, memories and and kind of yeah, like how how those things just kind of like move around there. Um, and so having him kind of present in the same building as her all day, not actually you know coming to the fore apart from once, um, felt for me like an interesting way of looking at how mental space
0: works in the subconscious. I started reading this article that you wrote about the prolonged impacts of sexual assault and you were writing about other literature and anthologies of survivors or victims. The, the word is used differently in different contexts like law enforcement or your personal story. I think, you know, what you were talking about, at least in the beginning was a little bit of what your character was experiencing that your experience was also one of a fog where you didn't really understand what you right. experienced and you couldn't name it.
1: Yeah. Um so yes. Yeah, so I I was um raped at the age of like nineteen and for a year after that happened, um, I I was convinced that it was a, an incident of violent, unwanted, but consensual sex. Um, and that's that's how I categorised it. That's how I processed it. Um, and there was, you know, a level of frustration and um, upset that I couldn't really comprehend. And I, I tried to... I essentially kind of put it down to the fact that it was, a, it was a violent incident. And so it was me being uncomfortable at the violence. Um, and it was only kind of a year later that in what was kind of a very surreal situation, I just kind of just instantly knew I just, I couldn't, I actually couldn't sleep. Um, and I was... I was at university and I got out of bed and sat at my desk and I just started um, writing I actually wrote an article um which which wasn't published but I was just I just wanted to write a kind of non-fiction thing just to kind of work out in my head what was going on um and it was it was yeah it was exactly this thing But I mean it's not it was not the same experience as my protagonist, but it was a similar trick in that i essentially had buried what had happened. And I denied myself what had happened because I guess that was that was the way it made sense to. And in partly that was because of lack of education and lack of um conversations about the way that rape works. And you know, there's a very kind of one-dimensional, very simple way that rape is taught and described, which is, you know. Uh, a, a stranger in the dark um who attacks you who you can you know very easily go to the police and and discuss because you know there's is clear cut um and this experience didn't didn't echo that in any way and so for me i i felt foolish to to call it that um and when i and when i realized it was actually kind of amazing i mean the act of naming and uh, kind of just seeing clearly what it was um, just like transformed a lot of things, um, and it's it's kind of amazing how much your like my mind my mind had obviously been working and thinking on it without me ever doing anything kind of consciously, um, which is why suddenly one night I just sort of woke up and my head told me. Um, feels crazy, but that
0: was how it worked. Can you talk a little bit about how you actually constructed this? Um, it's, you know, for, for listeners, they can't, they can't see what it looks like, but some, some pages might have what you think of as traditional prose with the words across a page. Some page has three columns. They have maybe a line, but there's big spaces between the lines and some words are in italics and some are capitalized and in bold and it's sometimes you know a reader might not be sure if they should read straight across or down so I'm curious first about how you constructed it and then if you have any thoughts about how people should read it
1: Mm, yeah um so it kind of it, it happened what felt very instinctively so it started by it was kind of like a pressure point Right, so I wanted to, right, immediately, I I was frustrated at, you know, thinking about a moment moment of present tense time. So right now, whilst I'm talking to you, and I'm, you know, also aware of the fact that there's several people on the street, and are they going to disrupt this? And I'm a bit cold, so I want to put my jumper on. And there's kind of all these things that are happening at the same time whilst you're trying to kind of adhere to one kind of set thing of, of just getting something done or doing something. Um, and I felt like when you're writing prose, you're so relying on the person to get to the end of the paragraph to perhaps hear about something that's happening at the same time as when the paragraph began. Um, and so if I wanted to write immediate present tense, honestly, I felt like I had to kind of break apart prose to, to deliver that for the reader. Um And so this kind of system arrived and it it did feel like it really did just arrive and it kind of just happened. And um, I see the page so much as the mind. Um, And it's as you go down the page, you're passing through time. And so uh, I guess the kind of sensory or external perceptions are on the right-hand side and her internal internalities on the left-hand side. Um, but also when she's thinking more than one thing, the, the prose breaks up into columns and then when the kind of dominant thought um, becomes sure like the, the prose will kind of become more traditional. Um, and so on the page it, it looks it looks very strange and fragmented. Um, I really like asking people like how they choose to, to read it and I, I like to not kind of prescribe what the right thing to do is but um, I think that actually the answer is to read it traditionally to read it uh, generally across but you're kind of there'll be moments when I, I feel, feel like once you've been reading it for maybe the first 20-30 pages where you, you kind of like you know how to read it um, and that changes depending on what the narrator's kind of priorities are because I think as the reader you kind of become more and more into inside her head and so you yourself know because of the rhythm or because of the way that she's leaning like where to follow um at least that's that's the hope
0: and because it's a stream of consciousness of this woman I'm curious how if it was a stream of consciousness really for you to write it and if it was just this flowing thing that came out naturally and, and it, or if how much you crafted it, like went back and like nitpicked and moved words, like physically moved them on the page as well as just editing what you wrote.
1: Mm, um. Yeah. So I wrote mainly by hand, which I think was really helpful because uh, if I'd been doing it on my laptop, the kind of, you know the process of formatting would have taken up so much time and I would have lost a lot of the rhythm and the pace um it was it was like a very quick writing experience and like when I when I would write I would really like scribble you know I would I would be kind of hearing her voice and needing to get it down as quickly as possible before I lost it um and I really moved to a rhythm I mean I think that for me that this book is kind of quite musical though kind of both motifs, but also a kind of pace and rhythm that's important and that um, the voice kind of follows. Um, And so when I was writing that, it was mainly trying to lean into this kind of, whatever kind of beat or whatever was leading me. Um, I didn't write chronologically, um, which I think in some ways helped because I was never slogging through. plan I kind of just listen to what's happening and then and then write off that um and so but but even though I don't plan I had the had the simple structure of a day you know I had a temporal t- a plan I had a kind of physical plan I knew, I knew where she was you know I had the office I had uh, I knew where she was going in the evening and so I had all those ten pegs before I even had to really think about it um, and I think through having those, I was able to write far more instinctively. Um, and then the kind of active editing was when I would write up whatever I'd written in my notepads. Um, and I think as I wrote up, I would kind of change odd words or think, "Huh, I reckon I could actually, you know, format format it this way because things look far neater when you're doing it in a Word document rather than." scrawled across the page and so I think there was a kind of a natural tweaking and editing process that, as that happened um but it was a kind of surreal and often very kind of verbatim process where what was written remained and you know still remains as it is in the book
0: was there anything about writing it that was re-traumatizing for you and or cathartic
1: it wasn't actually I, th- I think I kind of I felt like it was a cathartic for for her I mean <laughs> she feels like very real to me and I felt often like I was getting it down on, on behalf of her and I felt like I was I was you know committing something f- for a friend I was doing this in order to help her um which sounds you know borderline actually insane um but was just the kind of strange relationship that a writer can have with their characters and um it doesn't really make that much sense but you know why can't she be any more real than someone talking to me when she's so loud inside my head when i was writing it um and so that was definitely a level of catharsis um it wasn't re-traumatizing really um it's funny i mean you know her experience of being raped her experience of trauma is is very very different to mine, um, but I think for the kind of cycles of neurosis or trauma, they, they, those kind of patterns um, are very similar. However, however you apply them, um, and so I don't know. M- maybe like there was a level of of understanding or psych- psychological kind of processing. Maybe I understand trauma better from having written it, um, but it yeah, it certainly felt more. Than else.
0: Can you read something from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: I'm going to read a quick passage from Virginia Woolf's last and never finished novel, *Between the Acts*. Um, I read this book quite a few times, although now not for many years. Um, I was obsessed with Woolf um, from when I was a teenager. Um, I think she was like inescapably formative to me as a writer in ways that I kind of am still wondering as to like what exactly she's done she's just done something um but what I love about this book is that you can choose any moment and get something from it the layers in her writing are incredible the way her characters move uh the way their bodies hold their thoughts it's just um it's just amazing um so yeah I'm just going to read a little bit. Then they went into lunch, and Mrs Manraiser bubbled up, enjoying her own capacity to surmount without turning a hair this minor social crisis, this laying of two more places. But had she not complete faith in flesh and blood? And aren't we all flesh and blood? And how silly to make bones of trifles when we're all flesh and blood under the skin. Men and women too, but she preferred men, obviously. What are your rings for and your nails and that really adorable little straw hat? said Isabella addressing Mrs Manraiser silently and thereby making silence add its unmistakable contribution to talk. Her hat, her rings, her fingernails red as roses smooth as shells were there for all to see but not her life history. That was only scraps and fragments to all of them. Excluding perhaps William Dodge whom she called Bill publicly. A sign perhaps that he knew more than they did. Some of the things that he knew, that she strolled the garden at midnight in silk pajamas, had the loudspeaker playing jazz in the cocktail bar, of course, they knew also. But nothing private, no strict biographical.
0: Is there anything else you want to say about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this, this book is just, um, I think the thing I love about it is the kind of, she both deals with the paradox of being in a society, the way we can collectively feel isolated you know the sense of like being united and feeling alone and certain that we are different whilst being so similar to each other um and i just i just love the idea of individuality actually being this kind of inescapably universal thing and she
0: just can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft
1: i'm going to read the the kind of first thing i wrote of little scratch um because, I mean, I think it was a thing that uh, without it, perhaps the whole book wouldn't exist. Um, It was kind of the spark. Uh, It was the act of... The act of writing it kind of spun something into my head. It it unlocked something for me. Um, It's a kind of everyday neurosis, but in writing it, it it became something that sounded so much more like a fixation. And made me think a lot about kind of um, neuroticism and how the act of writing can can make something feel far more intense and far more distinct and and less everyday. And so, this is um, she's in her lunch break, and a colleague just approached her and asked what book she's read recently. Um, And as soon as her colleague asks that question, she just forgets any memory of having read a book. What have I read, I say, pensively, as if the choice is just too extravagant, and I merely want to select the right book for my shelf that'll interest him, the shelf inside my head, I mean, so that I'm not just delivering any old thing, which will only make things worse, naturally, because my head is still blank and time for rumination is running out, only implying I'm thinking over what I say, so that now whatever I say should seem more intelligent. But I still see clearly the table in front of me, my legs underneath asking to be scratched. Spoon still clean, phone flashing WhatsApp, screen unbroken chats hiding the carefully chosen background of my phone. And I see him noticing too, looking without wanting to at my phone flickering. Him to the phone and then to me, to the phone. Me too, to the phone, to him, him to me, phone, me, me, him. And I now can't turn the phone over, letting the back face up, because he'll know that I know that we both know so i let it flicker whilst i continue to think still not in my head seeing clearly what is in front and overhead him standing jutting out signaling to those walking light bulb blinking but the nook behind the coffee station is in use signaling to those passing by look in look at the reddening girl sitting on the sofa mouth shut
0: do you want to say anything else about that
1: yeah, it's it's funny that that moment is actually the only the only thing that I fairly think of as experience that I spun into fiction. Um that was a kind of a moment where I I actually did did see a colleague and they asked him what I'd read and I was unable to unable to recall anything. Um and it's I don't know I think it speaks a lot of the way that the fiction, this kind of thing I was saying before about the kind of tightrope of fiction and and how one moment of genuine uh, fact of my life that something very, very tedious—of being asked a question can trigger a whole book. Um, it still kind of confuses me, but kind of kind of excites me. The, the sense of uh, you know the fact that I could, that something very small that will and maybe tomorrow to me might inspire another novel.
0: Where do you write? Um,
1: Well, The honest answer is I write anywhere um, in any way. I write in emails and notepads at my laptop. Um, Now the pandemic kind of restricts location, so I write at the table in the flat um, that I rent, but I kind of have never been someone who needs a particular setup to write.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: For me, the hard-to-get game works the other way. It, it might be better to ask my writing, you know, where do you go and why do you evade me? Um, i never try and escape writing. I'm always trying to chase it down.
0: Who do you show your work first to to get feedback?
1: I show it to my boyfriend, who is a brilliant judge of writing and the most honest person I know, which makes it a very terrifying prospect invaluable.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I'm lucky so far in having had to deal with not a lot of rejection, at least not within the writing process. Um, I think the more success, the more rejection. And my, you know, my career is early for now. Um, rather than rejection for now, I deal with insecurity, uh, which I am very open to advice on. because I've not yet learned how to overcome that one.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: changes and it's often unconscious um right now I would say a a word that currently tickles me at least is um the word nutmegging um I was watching a game of football on tv the other day and someone nutmegged someone which means to kick the ball through someone's legs it's like an undoing and an embarrassment um and I googled why it was called that and I saw that it was because um Nutmeg used to be, you know, an incredibly valuable commodity. And so exporters would screw people over by mixing in wooden replicas of sacks that were being shipped. Um, And I just thought there was something really satisfying about this kind of history being tied up in a moment of movement, you know, screwing someone over and kicking a ball through their legs and that actually speaking of a history of foul play.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much. It's been really interesting to talk to you.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Rebecca Watson, author of Little Scratch. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Helen Phillips, author of The Need, which also portrays an intimate look at a woman whose reality seems to be changing the more we learn about her circumstances. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Deborah Spark, Bill Clegg, Susan Minot, and Jonathan Lethem. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.